Our guest heretic Josh Catalis is here today to tell us why fat, calories, and exercise are only part of the weight loss equation. Today, we'll be talking about how the endocrine system, and more precisely, our toxic load from everything, from your pajamas to pesticides, are a major cause of excess fat storage. Plus, we'll talk about his clinical nutrition program to help practitioners hone their skills in helping clients with a wide range of conditions. We're getting the let out today on the Nutrition Heretic Podcast. Meet Gina. Gina wanted to lose weight, so she spent two years fasting, detoxing, and dabbling with vegan diets while practicing a shit ton of yoga to lose 25 pounds. But it took so long that nobody noticed. Then, Gina started Frenching her food by eating fatty cheeses, butter, sausages, and red meat, and lost 15 more pounds in only two months. Everybody noticed this time. Frenching your food unlocks the riddle of weight loss that skinny French chicks use to slim down, look young, and live longer despite doing everything wrong. Be like Gina. Start Frenching your food today by visiting nutritionheretic.com forward slash Frenching. Fat is bad for you. I just pop a pill and I'm fine. Meat is murder. <laughs> it's time for bad food punishment. It's time for real nourishment. It's time for the nutrition heretic. The following program is provided as information only and may not be construed as medical or health advice. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any disease. No action or inaction should be taken solely on the basis of the information provided here. Please consult with a licensed healthcare professional or doctor on any matter relating to your health and well-being. Aloha and welcome to the Nutrition Heretic Podcast. This is Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic. Today, uh, I wanted to remind you about my pet peeve on calories and fat grams and and weight loss, how that pertains to weight loss. Uh, as you know, that's, that's kind of um, been one of the messages that I try to inform people about because when we talk about obesity the the first thing most people go for is what gluttons those people are why can't they just get up and exercise and from my experience um particularly my background as a dancer i know many dancers who are struggling with their weight and they all have something in common and it's not too much fat too much calories you know and the way i look at it uh, most Overweight people who are trying desperately to lose weight and they've been doing at this for, you know, 5, 10, 20 years, they are more uh, knowledgeable about the tricks of weight loss. And they've tried everything from vegan to paleo and everything in between, and they can't figure it out. But unless they're lucky, they are not going to find uh, information about what we're going to talk about today. Um, and what I want, what I have done is I've invited, I want to call him doctor all the time, but he's not, <laughs> he's a clinical nutritionist. <laughs> His name is Josh Gitalis, and he is in Toronto, Canada. Welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here. 
So um, talk to me. Am I totally off base here when I say that fat people are not gluttons and that there could be other reasons why people gain and store excess weight? You are bang on. Yeah. So (laughs) there are lots of other reasons, right? And not all of them are so obvious. So, you know, I I know um, we discussed that we wanted to talk about this particular topic, but um, there's a group of chemicals called obesogens. Mm -hmm. And just by the name, I think most people could get an understanding of what they might do. Uh, the, The term was coined in 2006 by Bruce Blumberg. And basically it means a chemical that inappropriately, inappropriately stimulates adipogenesis and fat storage. And adipogenesis is just a fancy word for making more fat, adipo, fat, and genesis create. So there's chemicals in our environment that actually give a message to the body, hey, hang on to more fat for whatever reason, right? Right. Um, and and there's, there's many of them. Um, there's over 20 that have definitely been identified Yikes. as obesogens. And, and they're, you know, they're probably, if, if people who are listening right now look around the room, there are probably a number of them just around them. Right. So uh, I can give you a few examples. Yes. You know. Yeah. And I, I'm um, particularly interested in, in the really surprising ones, the one, because I think, so, you know, people know certain things and you can, yeah, I mean, you could talk about all of them, uh, but there might be some that are really just like, whoa, I didn't think that was, you know, my my mattress could cause this, you know, or, or what have you. Right. Oh, right. yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll discuss one in particular that's quite hidden. Most people don't even know they're exposed to it, and it's everywhere. And these are flame retardants. These are polybrominated mm. diphenyl ethers. And there's an interesting story behind these. Um, it kind of goes way back to <laughs> the days where everyone was sm- fighting the big smoking companies, the big smoke companies, big tobacco. Um, And there was a big problem with fires, right? People lighting cigarettes, you know, not smoking the whole thing or falling asleep with a cigarette in their hand or, you know, not putting it out properly or, you know, a a young person gets a hold of one and, you know, throws it somewhere um, and fire starts, right? So the smoking, big, big tobacco was mandated to create cigarettes that self-extinguish. So if you stop smoking them for a period of time, they would kind of go out. Right. Uh, but they weren't so happy with that. So, you know, obviously they had, you know, millions of dollars behind them and they kind of turned it back around and said, well, you know, that's actually not the problem with these fires. The problem is that things catch on fire too easily. So. <laughs> I know. They it's, just, it's, they do what they naturally do. That's a problem. <laughs> right, right. It sounds ridiculous. Okay. Um, so they said, you know, you guys need to put something in your products that don't go up in flames so quick. And that's when we started to saturate all of our products, like upholstery, clothes, uh, cars, lots of other things too, with flame retardants, these chemicals right. that are you know, very, quite harmful to the body. They have this obesogenic effect, as, as I spoke about. They inhibit thyroid activity. And they're in your environment. They get right absorbed into the body. Right. And, you know, you you just reminded me of a friend of mine. Uh, and, I mean, you know, it's, it's that catch-22. It actually saved his life, apparently, or at least his skin. But a friend of mine, her son, um, was sleeping in the room. And somehow, I guess they had one of those... Uh, what they call it, torchier, um lanterns, you know, the, uh, like the uh, lamps that are on a big pole. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and it tipped over and the like everything caught on fire except for his pajamas because they had that flame retardant in it. So, I mean, this was a, a situation, but that, uh, you know, it actually did help someone, but at the same time, he's wearing all of these chemicals. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it, it's interesting you bring that point up because I just had a, a child eight months ago. And one of the things, you know, that parents often do is they keep the, you know, their kids clothes. And my mother brought over like a pile of clothes from when I was a baby. And one of my, uh, like, uh, sleep outfits had a label on it saying this product contains flame retardants. Mm. Um, I, we also have like a, a sleep sack for, for our son Finley and, and there's a label on it that says this product does not contain. No. <laughs> so, you know, they have to label it when they do, they have to label it when they don't. But seeing that on the clothes that I wore when I was a baby sort of horrified me. Yeah. Right. That I was wearing that and exposed to that. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so it's everywhere. It's right against our skin. It's, you know, in our upholstery, it's in couches, it's in carpets, it's in, it's in cars, you know, when you smell the new car smell. Oh yeah. Uh, and, and this goes right into the body and, they, and a lot of them get stored. Oh jeez. Yeah. That's, <laughs> it's, it feels, feels a little uh, dismal uh, to, to listen to, uh, yeah. you know, just, just how much we're surrounded by these. Yeah. We just actually, we, when we were looking for a car seat, uh, we couldn't find any car seats without flame retardants in them. We found one car seat without flame retardants that had just come out on the market. Wow. And now there's 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 laws starting to come into place that a lot of products don't have to contain okay. flame retardants because they've actually discovered they don't work. Well, I was well going to say, and, and we have so fewer, I mean, if, if the genesis of this was that people were falling asleep with a cigarette in their hand or their mouth, whatever... Uh, not as many people are smoking in the U.S. Mm-hmm. as they once Absolutely. as there were once were. So you know, is it really? Uh, and, and they got to smoke outside. <laughs> so is it really? <laughs> and trees are going to catch fire. Like you can't, you know, you can't do it to everything. You can't uh, flame retard everything. Uh, so yeah, it's it doesn't seem like it's even necessary from what was the original rationale behind it. Now you said that the body stores this for whatever reason. Do we know some of the reasons why the body stores it? Is it to protect us? Is it to, uh, because it doesn't know what to do with it you know, because it's so foreign to our body. Is it what, what's going on there? Right. So I think that's probably one of the mechanisms that it does, you know, certain chemicals are easily detoxified. They're easily cleared by the body. You know, if you take an aspirin, um, you know, it kind of does its thing, kills the pain, and then we're able to clear it pretty easily. But there's other chemicals that, for whatever reason, um, our body holds on to uh, much tighter Mm -hmm. um, for, for various chemical, you know, because of their chemical properties, like heavy metals, for example, will actually take the place of a lot of our minerals in in enzymatic pathways and it's hard to get them out. And even some tissues, it's hard to get it out than others. Like it's hard, really hard to get heavy metals out of the brain versus other parts of the body, Mm -hmm. like the liver. Um, and it's the same with these, these obesogens, some of the, they're called persistent organic pollutants because they, they persist in the environment for a long period of time. Um, and you know, one of our body's ways to protect the vital organs from these chemicals is to store them if they can't detoxify them properly. So they store them in fat cells, which is this wonderful, uh, extraneous tissue 
that we can increase as much as we want and has like unlimited room to store all these things. So, you know, one of the things that we are very careful of here in the clinic when we do weight loss with people is understanding that they could actually be releasing some of these chemicals as they're burning off some of those, you know, those pounds. Exactly. Right. And that's something we have to take into account. Right. So when you're taking them into account, um, I guess what we're trying to help escort them out of the body along with the fat that's being burned, correct? As opposed to just taking up residence somewhere else. Exactly. And I think this is something that a lot of people don't get. They're like, oh, I'm taking uh, cilantro for heavy metal detoxification. But I'm like, well, how are you actually getting it out? (laughs) Like (laughs) once it's, you know, it might dislodge it from from a particular organ. um, But is it necessarily removing it in the urine and feces? Exactly. It's so, that's so important and, and, and something that's often missed when it comes to detoxification. You know, it's like saying, oh, you know, I want to clean my house, do a little spring cleaning and you, you're dusting and you're vacuuming and then you go to take the garbage out and all the doors to your home are locked. Yes. It's like, how, how are you going to get that stuff out? Right. right. So what we talk about here um, is the five channels of elimination. Mm-hmm. And how we actually get things from the inside of the body to the outside of the body. I mean, like, what are those pathways? So, so there's five. Uh, the lungs, mm-hmm. the bowel, which is obvious to most people. The people, the kidneys, you know, peeing things out, which is also obvious to most people. Uh, the skin, yeah. which is, you know, always breathing. And the fifth one, which most people either ignore or forget or don't even know about, is the mind. Because thoughts that get stuck in our head can actually be toxic to us. Well, so, yeah, it's a. I think it's a metaphor, right? It's all. It's all. <laughs> everything is metaphorical, right? Because no, seriously, like our, our brain. You know, it's like you think about when people ruminate on things, right? And they've got these toxic thoughts and, you know, they wake up at four o'clock in the morning. And I'm saying this because this used to happen to me a lot. Wake up at four o'clock in the morning and remember something that happened in third grade. And I still can't forgive that person for, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, so yeah. And, you know, anal retentiveness, we all know (laughs) what that's that's about, right? Yeah. And you know what? It's, it's not just a metaphor. This stuff has been shown in the, in the literature. Mm-hmm. Now, um, one of the earlier researchers on this topic was Candace Pert, who wrote the body molecule or wrote the body, wrote the book, The Molecules of Emotion. Okay. Oh, um, wonderful book. But she describes how with each thought, with each perception that comes into our nervous system, we manufacture a cocktail of emotional chemicals mm-hmm. that then go around into circulation in our body and hit the receptors of pretty much every cell. Wow. So when we are thinking, uh, you know, negative thoughts based out of fear, a lot of these chemicals are, you know, geared towards degradation and, and catabolism and, and not healing, right? More of the, the, par- the sympathetic part of the nervous system. Right. And when we have, uh, you know, feelings of love and joyfulness and gratitude, uh, it releases all these wonderful healing chemicals that can restore the function of our cells and, you know, improve our health. 
Right. Wow. That's uh, that's really, really important. Uh, yeah, thank you for elaborating on that, because it is something that we hear about, but I think a lot of people don't take it seriously enough. Um, and, you know, particularly here in the States, we can see it politically, <laughs> you know? just our whole political landscape. And, and, and this is one of the rare places where I'm not even going to choose sides right now, but like we're all having this knee jerk reaction to everything that's going on. And um, and I get it. I mean, I've been there and I and I find myself going there sometimes. And I have to pull myself out because it's just, you know, it's not mm-hmm. worth me suffering over mm-hmm. all the, the ridiculous stuff that's going on right now. For so sure. so now, you know, we talked about the different pathways uh, that this can that we can get rid of these. And you also touched on something that I, I often talk about here on the podcast, which is, uh, for example, the heavy metals that would replace the uh, essential uh, uh, molecules that we need, you know, like, so, you know, if we're getting a a fluoride versus a a chloride, uh, um, you know, into the body, how, how do we help get some of these obesogens out? Like, how how do we, you know, replace them uh, so Mm -hmm. that they are not welcome anymore? Is there, is there anything that we can do? Oh, there's so much we can do so much. So, A lot of that goes into optimizing how those five channels of elimination work. Um, So one thing, again, that people really need to understand is that the detoxification process is happening all the time in every cell of our body. So essentially what we're trying to help the body do is is do a little catch up. You know, I, I often give the analogy of a dishwasher in a restaurant. You know, they're there standing doing the dishes. And they're doing them at a certain speed, right? They're coming in, they're washing them, they're coming out at the other end, and the restaurant can continue operating. But if the the busyness of that restaurant increases, more dishes are coming in, and those dishes can pile up. Right. And when those dishes pile up, uh, there's big problems eventually. There's no dishes left, and the restaurant has to shut down. So there's two ways we can deal with that. One, we can stop or decrease the amount of dishes coming in, stop the amount of customers, or two, we can get more dishwashers. Mm -hmm. So essentially, when we're optimizing those five channels of elimination, we're doing both of those. We're trying to decrease what's coming in. We first have to think about what's in our environment and decrease that total body burden or total toxic load. So we, you know, talk about where those would be in their environment and changing things up. And then we help to optimize those five channels of of elimination, bringing more of those um, dishwashers in. And you used one great example like cilantro. So from a nutritional perspective, there's a lot we can do there. We want a lot of good herbs and spices and colors to help fuel that detoxification process in the liver. Um, but there's also a lot of other great lifestyle things we can do as well. Um, you know, obviously drinking lots of water is super important. Uh, we can do sauna therapy, which really helps to, you know, sweat out a lot of these things, which is a very efficient channel of elimination for some of the heavy metals. Um, You know, so once you start combining a lot of these different uh, tools, you you improve the efficiency of the body and you start to purge a lot of these toxins. Right, right. Now, what what about, uh, you talk about water and I am somewhere in the middle on water because I believe that water is a mineral delivery system. Uh, and I, in my lexicon, you know, that's how it performs its work. Whereas a lot of people look at it as 
it doesn't have calories and we're just going to flush everything out. But, you know, is there uh, something to that, uh, that you have to make sure the, the water is of a certain quality, uh, even like, for example, how bone broth has caught on? Um, you know, mm-hmm. as as a uh, rich in mineral yeah, delivery system for water. Do you find that it will impact how efficiently the body can remove some of those other things? Um, I don't know if I've seen that specifically in the research, like where they've, you know, done studies and said, this water worked a lot better than that. Right. Water. Well, I mean, even clinically but, for yourself. Oh, yeah. But for sure, I definitely talk about sort of the hierarchy of what the best water is for my okay. clients. And probably one of the best ones is spring water, right. you know, that is loaded with minerals, yes. right? It gets filtered through the ground on the way down and gets remineralized through the ground on the way up. Right. Just um, make sure don't buy it in plastic because now we're back to square one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Before, before we had a kid, we used to go up north with like 10 glass carboys. We'd load mm-hmm. the car up. Nice. Um, and we just fill up on spring water and then I'd carry those all inside. It was like uh, our, our neighbors must have thought we were crazy, but that's what we did. Right. Um, so, so that's probably some of the best water loaded with minerals. But, you know, the reality is I'm working with a lot of people who live in the city who can't do that. So the next best thing is some sort of clean water. Right. And reverse osmosis takes everything out. So yeah. if people can install that, that's important. If you can't afford a reverse osmosis or you can't install one, there's great filters like the Berkey system where mm-hmm. you just pour it in the top, comes out beautifully in the bottom. Um, and if you, you know, if you don't have access to that, just any type of filter, right? So mm-hmm. that's sort of the hierarchy. Um, and we need clean water coming into the body or else you know, you know, chemicals are going straight into the bloodstream within like 20 minutes. Right. So, so what about uh, cookware? Because obviously, you know, we're going through all of this trouble to, you know, minimize uh, these different uh, obesogens in the in the environment, in you know, our water, et cetera. Uh, what about, about when it comes to cookware? Are there particular forms of cookware that we should be looking out for that might be damaging our metabolisms, our our endocrine system? Absolutely, yeah, uh, Teflon. Uh, which is that non-stick, you know, black coating that's on a lot of pans, uh, is an obesogen. Yeah. And, you know, Teflon doesn't really do much until you heat it up. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? <laughs> then it becomes a problem. <laughs> um, like Teflon, they put in a lot of toilets. Mm-hmm. So things don't stick when you flush them down, right? Mm, no. um, <laughs> I didn't have to think about that this morning, but okay, <laughs> let's go for it. <laughs> um, but when you put it in the cookware, you're heating it up. And when you heat it up, it makes it very unstable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Teflon's actually quite difficult for to kind of get out of your body once it's in. There's mm. you know, other chemicals are a lot easier to get in. So you know, you get all this beautiful organic food and then you're cooking it on Teflon and, and you're, you're getting this chemical. I think birds have been killed by uh, oh, using, you know, Teflon in, in, little play, in little homes, you know, where there's no air ventilation. Oh, wow. So, yeah, Teflon's not a good one. Aluminum I would stay away from because mm-hmm. of the heavy metal. Right. Um, you, you know, really cheap pans. Sometimes you don't even know what's in them. So I would stay away from those. Uh, copper can be a p- problematic for some people. They're often right. used in really, really nice, you know, high-end uh, chef's cookware. Yes. But, um, you know, that can create an imbalance in some people. Yeah, so so those would be some of the ones to stay away from. 
Do, do you have a favorite one that you would say, you know, if you're going to, you know, again, maybe it's, it's a hierarchy, whether it's yeah. cast iron, uh, stainless, ceramic. Those are all great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we have a few different ones in our home. We use mostly, mostly stainless steel. We've got mm-hmm. some ceramic, like from the, the company Le Crusette, which makes mm-hmm. fabulous cookware. Um, yeah. And those are the main ones we use. Glass is also good, you know, for, for like, you know, liquid type things. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm having trouble finding, I, maybe it's because I live on an island, <laughs> but I've been having trouble <laughs> finding uh, glass cookware recently. I was looking for something. Uh, but in any case, so let's, uh, let's move on to um, actual foods that might be impacting our endocrine system. Uh, and I want to start with the oils, fats and oils. What's, what's going on there? Sure. Well, to set the stage here, every single cell in our body, every one of our 10 trillion cells has a cell membrane that's made up of phospholipids. And that second part of that word there, phospholipid, is lipid, fat. Right. Um, so those, those are the walls of every single cell in our body. And that they, it, it's what communicates with other cells and what's in the bloodstream and, and how there's communication within the body. So you know, if you have a wall around the city and it's broken and it's made up, made up of bad material and the doors are kind of hanging off and the guards around them aren't working so well and, and the communication is out on some parts of the wall, that city on the inside isn't going to operate too well and communicate too well with the outside world. Um, and it's the same with ourselves. So we need good fats to build those walls so communication can happen properly. Mm-hmm. And we get those fats from our food. Right. So what happens when we um, consume one, some, you know, fats that are inappropriate, like what would be, I mean, you're from the land of canola oil, which is, which, um, you know, I remember the last time I was in Canada, I was like, really, I can't get anything without canola oil, huh? (laughs) It's it's really that insidious. Uh, What, what is, what are some of the ones that, that will cause, um, you know, they're, they're not, they're, they're not doing a good patch job on, on yes. the cell wall. Yeah. Well, I have to tell you just before I get there is that canola oil fields, mm-hmm. like farm fields, yeah. are one of the most beautiful things you see here. It's true. In Ontario. It, they're just unbelievable. But they pack a mean hidden punch of inflammation. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, sorry, what, what was the question again? I got distracted thinking about these beautiful fields. I was like, you were like taking me back to last summer. Um, I, I was, uh, I was uh, asking which oils um, are maybe not doing such a great job of yeah. patching the hole or, or you know, helping the, the, the functioning of the cell wall. Right. So it's not always necessarily the specific oil, but it's sometimes how it's processed too. Mm, yeah. So, true. you know, like uh, canola oil isn't the devil. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's when it gets heated and cooked and, and processed where it really becomes a bad oil. And, you know, a lot of these oils that you see in the grocery store that are in these clear plastic containers have gone through a, a very long process to get them so shelf stable that they can just sit there forever right. and not go rancid because oils are very, very sensitive. Like canola oil has a lot of omega-6 in it, which is an essential oil, right. meaning our body can't make it. Um, so that's one of the issues. It goes through, you know, at least, you know, seven or eight steps to get there where they're taking out the oil from the, 
on the plant, degumming it, refining it, bleaching it, deodorizing it, um, and you're not left with a lot of nutrition at the end. Right. And then an, another issue for a lot of people is that they consume the wrong ratio of oils True. because they're eating a lot of processed foods. So again, you know, if you a lot of processed foods because these oils are cheap, they you know they're using like safflower oil, sunflower oil, canola oils. Um, and those are very high in omega-6s, so it creates an imbalance in the body of omega-6 to omega-3. Right. And that really sets the body up for an inflammatory process to occur. Right. So remind us the, the uh, ideal ratio of omega-6 to omega-3. And we hear more about the omega-3s than the omega-6s, and I think it's just because we get so much uh, omega-6 inadvertently. Uh, but you have to seek out, it seems, the omega-3s a little bit more. True? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. So the optimal ratio is about a 3 to 1 ratio okay. of omega-6 to omega-3. And we're getting, what, 50 to 1, 20 to 1? It could get it could get that high, yeah. yeah. About 20 to 1 to 50 to 1 is like the standard American diet. Right. So then, um, you know, how are we – How what's – What's a simple way? Because like I said, we, we have to seek out the omega-3s. We know it's in fish oil, you know, <laughs> no, it's in flax and hemp. You know, like what's, what's a simple way people can make sure they get enough of the omega-3s? Um, well, you know, the paleolithic diet has taken a huge surge. Mm -hmm. And a big focus of the paleolithic diet, and just, you know, for your listeners to set the stage, I'm not like an advocate of one specific diet. Yeah. Like when I work with people, we just try to figure out the diet that's best for them, right? So I'm not like a paleolithic dude, right? <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I'm using it as an example because it's taken a huge surge, and and when a, and a big focus of it is is sort of eating the way we ate, like yeah. thousands of years ago. So, you know, animal. If we're eating animals, you, you know, you're not just you are what you eat, but you are what you eat eats. Right. And right. right. <laughs> a lot of those animals that might be part of the paleolithic diet are eating, you know, wild foods yes. themselves, you know, and, you know, I guess beef is a, is a big one, right? You mm -hmm. know, they're, they're, if they're eating grass, they're getting a lot of omega-3s and good fats. But if they're eating the typical feed in a, in a lot farm, they're getting a lot of the omega-6s. Yeah. Um, so you could be eating the same food, but depending on what they have eaten, you could be getting two completely different versions. Right. And so when we're going back to, you know, organic, you know, natural meats, natural foods, lots of fruits and vegetables, lots of nuts and seeds, the stuff that was just here, you know, before we thought we were smarter than nature and created all these Franken foods, you're going to be on the right track. Yeah. And you probably don't have to think about it too much. Right. Um, so let's say somebody isn't paleo. You know, and they're they or, and let's take this to the other extreme. They are vegan, uh, mm -hmm. and you know, where are they going to easily get their omega threes? Well, a lot of the same principles apply to a vegan. Is you know they're looking for just whole foods, right? Um, and so a lot of the essential fats are going to come from nuts and seeds, but you still get some in vegetables. Uh huh. Um, you know, if you think about what a, a cow eats, they just eat green leafy vegetables all day long. True. 
But they also have four stomachs to uh, convert. (laughs) (laughs) And I've got goats, too. So I see, you know, I see what they're eating. And uh, one of the things I know about goats is they produce more vitamin C than like any other species, apparently. You know, they're Mm. just they're like vitamin C factories. So they can they're pretty hardy animals. It's weird because on the one side, they're hardy. On the other side, you can they can get sick really easily and die within 24 hours it's the weirdest mm. <laughs> thing with them um but uh i think part of my success thus far with them has been moving them rotating them on different grasses around my property so that they're not constantly eating you know basically where they've pooped cuz they don't pay attention to where they poop <laughs> What a a great tip. I'll keep that in mind if I ever have goats. (laughs) No, but seriously, they can can get uh, parasites quite easily. Mm, And, mm -hmm. um, you know, the inside of their eyelid will turn white, which means that basically they're anemic. And within 24 hours, if you don't catch them right away, you can can totally lose your goat the next day. Yeah. I love that. We can learn so much when we live closer to nature and live with other organisms and watch how they live and, and, you know, kind of apply that to ourselves as well. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I've gotten into since moving to Hawaii, and I bore my audience to death with this, is uh, this system of farming called Korean natural farming, which is based on the old uh, Japanese techniques that, you know, a lot of people have forgotten, actually Japanese and Korean. Uh, But it was kind of systematized by a a guy named Master Cho. And um, he is, uh, you know, he's really focused on the indigenous microorganisms in the soil. Uh, So, you know, I like to think of it as sort of like probiotics uh, that feed the plants. Uh, Mm -hmm. Then, you know, in turn, they can feed us similarly. So where we're not talking about soil tests and get this much nutrients, we're looking at how can we build a soil foundation that the plants will just love and will help them thrive. And you know, like everything else falls into place once you have that. So, sorry, I'm just elaborating on on what you're saying about learning from nature. Uh, the more I get into having this farm, having you know this uh, the, the animals, the the land that I'm I'm reworking. Uh, you know, we also have chickens, we have cats. So I see how each species has different needs and how they react to different things. And it really is eye-opening for our human organism. I love that. I love that. And, you know, I, I'm here in Toronto in a city and people get so removed from their optimal environment. Oh, for you know, sure. like you, you go to a zoo and in that zoo, there's like, you know, 72 different pavilions, right? There's the ones for the snakes that live in like a nice dry area with, you know, hot lamp and you know whatever and then there's like the polar bears and like the icy area with the water and everything and each organism has an optimal environment so humans have sort of forgotten that question you know what's the optimal environment for us yeah you know we grew up outside we grew up in nature yeah um obviously there's some benefits for being in these controlled environments indoors but but, you know, we, we always have to try to find that optimal balance and, you know, getting into nature, I think, which is a whole other discussion for a whole other day, is so important. Right, right. And, and um, you know, and, and going a little bit beyond just like the regular hike, too, you know, I mean, unless you're unless you are really into the wildlife that you're seeing on that hike. 
I think sometimes, I mean, getting out in nature is good anyway, don't get me wrong. Um, but when we're really trying to connect and understand ourselves, it, it really helps to observe how the other animals live. So, um, you know, whenever you can, like even uh, my husband is an avid bird watcher, for example, you know, so he can tell me all kinds of things about bird habitats um, that I just never would have picked up. But then again, we got chickens and that knowledge increased so much just by seeing their behaviors, what they are drawn to, you know, how they eat, um, you know, the, the conditions that they need for laying eggs, for example, and things like that. Really, really enlightening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was at a conference last year. And one of the questions we had from the audience was someone, someone was quite skeptical, skeptical that organic was even organic. They're like, how do we even know if organic's organic? Like, where do we actually get good food? So we were on a panel, I was on a panel with four other people, and one of the things we brought up was this, you know, bringing the nature in, you know, growing your own stuff, right. which is so easy, right? And, you know, you know, even having like a little herb pot in your kitchen, you, if you're in like the smallest apartment in New York, you can do that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I lived in a second floor of a house in my previous residence. And I had a whole garden just on my back deck with, right. you know, I, it was astounding how much food I can make. And wow. from those experiences, they're like force multipliers, right? You don't just make the food, but you learn just so much about food, about nature, about soil, about health, about, you know, the taste and the flavor of real food that it opens up your mind to a whole other world. Right, for sure. Well, you know, and, and you are now reminding me about something that I, <laughs> something that I learned um, it, with this uh, farming technique is that uh, the mouth of the plant is actually in the roots. Mm. And um, for example, I am about to plant some uh, olive trees and banana and things like that. And the mouth needs air. You don't, you know, the, our instinct is to dig a hole put the tree down in the hole and then pack that soil on as tight as we can. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and really what ends up happening is you end up stunting the growth of the plant. Mm. And, but if you build a mound and it can be like, you know, dried up uh, sticks and leaves and, you know, some dirt in there for sure. And then you plant the, your tree in there. And so that the, the, the roots can breathe and they can reach mm -hmm. oxygen, you're going to get a tall, strong tree that's going to start digging down into the soil and breaking up. Like I have a lot of rock where I live, so it's going to start breaking up the mm. rock and converting that into soil. I mean, it's really, really fascinating um, when we start to realize that, you know, the leaves aren't the mouth, but the, but the roots are. I love that. I'm going to have to uh, give you a call when I'm ready to set up my garden. All right. Well, <laughs> yeah. And, and you, there's no shortage of like regenerative farming uh, uh, podcast episodes that we have here. So. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Like every system teaches me something else. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, if, if nothing, if nothing else, uh, just the, the amount of power that we have within ourselves to make this happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, you know, a lot of this permaculture type of, of farming practices, they're getting away from the soil test and they're going back to observing and understanding the life cycle of a plant. You know, if, uh, if a tree is starting to flower, it's very similar to pregnancy. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so where, for example, I know when I was pregnant, getting rid of morning sickness was was often well. For me, it was a lot of protein in the morning, but also sour that, you know, when they talk about women craving pickles and ice cream, that's no joke. You know, it's the sourness of pickles really does a lot for morning sickness. And it turns out that sourness vinegar will do a lot for your trees that are flowering to create Mm. healthy fruit. So, yeah, it's really just so many parallels uh, Mm -hmm. that have gotten me to reevaluate my understanding of nutrition just through looking at it through the plant lens. Very cool. Um, so, you know, um, what are some of the, the uh, you talked about the animals that can contribute to hormonal imbalance. Are there vegetables and legumes that we should be on the lookout for? Uh, because there's a, there's a, a tendency to kind of gang up on the animal foods like, ah, you know, animals, uh, they cause so many problems. But we know <laughs> that there's, there's some plants that are estrogenic, for example. For sure. And I, I think it really, you know, shows us what, you know, when things get overdone, I think that's the big problem. Oh, for sure. Right. Like, like soy, for example, right. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in Japan, they're, they're mostly using it as a condiment. Yeah. Um, but here, you know, vegans or vegetarians are like, oh, soy is a, a good protein source. I've got to include it with everything. Right. And I'm going to get soy meat and soy milk and soy cheese and soy soy everything. And you end up overdoing what's in that food. We are always meant to kind of uh, be omnivorous and look at, you know, many different foods and kind of forage for different things when they're in season. One, you know, and I think an issue that we've got into with some of these foods like soy uh, is that word estrogenic or phytoestrogens. In mm-hmm. fact, the the, the the researcher that discovered phytoestrogens, regrets he ever called them phytoestrogens, because they're they're not necessarily estrogens, but they're more modulators of estrogen. Yes. Um, so, you know, for example, soy have weak estrogens in them. Now, if an individual has high estrogen in their body, endogenous estrogen, mm-hmm. uh, and they want to, you know, those that estrogen takes up a receptor on our cells, like a parking spot. And if we want to occupy some of those parking spots with a weaker estrogen, the soy estrogen actually turns out to be a good option. But if we overdo it, then even though it's a weaker estrogen, we're like just saturating the body with too much estrogen again. So yeah. it, becomes, it becomes that type of problem. So sometimes it's a balance. Um, so, you know, when I work with clients and we're using specific therapeutic foods, we also talk about the dosage. So I don't say to them, hey, you know, you've got estrogen dominance, go and eat everything soy. We say, you know, you know, keep it to two to three servings a week. These are the foods that have those phytoestrogens, phytoestrogens in them. Eat this particular amount. Don't overdo it. And it should have the desirable effect. Mm, I like that. Uh, partially because I recently uh, interviewed a Dr. Rashna Patel, who is a medical mar- marijuana expert. And so we kind of, you know, talked about this whole concept of dosing, uh, you know, with the medical marijuana, because, you know, you're not trying to get high. <laughs> but that's mm-hmm. what, you know, people are, people think like, no matter what, you're going to get, you know, something, some kind of hit from that. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's definitely mirroring that and, and we don't, uh, you're so right, uh, because we don't think of these foods as like, let's take eight ounces, two ounces, whatever it is for a particular food, um, you know, per day or, or, you know, over the course of a week or whatever it is to make sure that we're getting the right amount because we're, we're very much an all or nothing 
kind of society, aren't we? When in North America, where it's like, oh, more is better. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I'll get rid of it. I'll get rid of it faster if I take twice um, twice as much. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so how do you suggest people make these changes without getting totally neurotic? You know, I think there's different type of people. There's like the cold turkey people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I get the cold turkey clients who are like, tell me exactly what I need to do and I will do it 100%. I think that's a small percentage of our population. I think most people like to, you know, go slow and steady and start with a few changes, you know, easy things as time goes on, incorporating it into their life, making it a habit, then moving on to the next. And the beauty about your podcast and all this great information that's now out there is that people can saturate their brains with this information. And Mm -hmm. as they're listening to it and learning more, they can incorporate more and more and more. And it often happens so slow, people don't even notice. Right. So, you know, one one thing that I ask when I do talks places is I ask of the audience, does everyone know at least one thing they can do today to improve their health? And everyone puts up their hand, right? Like right. I think we all know at least one thing to do. So people listening right now should think about that. Write it down. When yeah. you write it down, you make it real. And do that one thing for like right. at least 30 days. Yeah. And the cool thing about health and creating new healthy habits is that you get compounding interest, health interest from them. You know, like when you put $100 into the bank account and you're making, you know, say 5% interest on that, it compounds over time. You keep on making interest on the total amount. And that's what happens with health. So as you add habits over habits over habits over habits, you get this compounding health effect into your health account. And it adds up over the years in a positive way. It's right. Just, it's amazing. So I think baby steps for a lot of people is a great way to do it. Yeah, because, you know, even just uh, you have you have a really great article on the obesogens on your website. And uh, you've got I think it was seven or eight uh, different ways that people can uh, kind of uh, detoxify. Right. So it was the drinking the water is brushing your skin and you know, a couple. I forget what the other things were. Those, those are two mm-hmm. that, that uh, jumped out at me and obviously uh, avoiding um, them as much as possible. But I was like, wow, you know, that that can be um, a, a little over some people's head. Right. Because right. it's like, oh, my gosh, now I've got to like, you know, like I'm already busy. Now I got to set aside time to brush my damn skin. <laughs> you know, yeah. gotta, you know <laughs> I've got to go up to the mountain and fetch water in a glass carboy. <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, that's yeah, that's like the advanced advanced, you know, <laughs> like. You know, there's like active and passive things you can do. Like when we're talking about the detoxification, you know, the passive things are things you can, you have to do like once or twice and you never ever have to think about it again, which is amazing, right? Right. Like if you're switching out all your beauty products and cosmetics and cleaning products in your house and personal care in your house and personal care products and um, you know, the, the products in your kitchen and you're throwing out all your Teflon pans and getting new pans, like that type of stuff, you never have to think about it again. Really. Right. Right. So it takes no more mental energy. That's the passive stuff. But then there's the active stuff, which takes a little bit more practice, yeah. you know, like in terms of doing it daily or weekly or monthly, mm-hmm. um, you know, like taking a sauna, 
um, doing a hot yoga, you know, drinking lots of water, um, you know, doing a detoxification protocol, making a, a green juice, you know, taking some uh, chlorella tablets, right? Like the, those things are more active, but those those passive ones are a huge bang for your buck. They just help you basically get to zero, right? Yeah. They help get to that baseline. Right, right. Just it's it's like your your support characters. <laughs> just it's like it's okay. It's already in place. I don't have to do anything else. Right after right. that, or at least you know within reason. Mm-hmm. So, in any case, um, tell us a little bit about your functional nutrition certification program. Right. So. You know, I've taught at uh, a couple health colleges here in Toronto, um, and then I started teaching privately. And I, I really just began teaching privately and putting these courses together because my students were asking over and over, you know, how, tell me more about uh, digestion. Tell me more about hormones. How do you put your protocols together? So as the courses added up, I finally got to a point where I had a whole you know, amazing program for, for practitioners who really want to dive deep and health enthusiasts alike who want to dive deep into the information. And I take a lot of the sort of the practical knowledge that I've gained over the, my years of doing this and a lot of the book knowledge, like, you know, the latest research and studies and textbooks and all the stuff that I've gotten my hands on over the years as well in that respect. And I combine them both to really get the best of both worlds. And that's what I put into my courses. So I have a whole a full functional uh, nutrition certification program. Uh, it's about a year long, depending on where you start. And we, we have a, a specific course in digestion, one on hormones, detox, mental health. Uh, I, I have a course on how I put protocols together. We talk about functional lab testing and normal lab testing. And, and uh, you know, people walk away with some real powerful tools in their, their uh, toolkit there. Nice. That's that's really, really important um, because I think it's not necessarily, especially the uh, putting together protocols is not necessarily, uh, you know, one of the keys that's handed over to us uh, in, in many of the uh, varying, you know, it's, unfortunately, nutrition is unregulated. So, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> you know, it's, there's just not a lot of uh, guidance for a lot of people how to really get down and dirty uh, with putting together good protocols. Absolutely. That, and that, that's that are not that's, overwhelming <laughs> for the totally. patient. And that's what's so important in this field. You know, there's, there's podcasts like yours, there's summits, there's, you know, these video, you know, movies that are put out on the internet. I mean, there's so much information yeah. today. People get overwhelmed and they also, um, a lot of it, I think gives people a false sense of what it actually takes and what, what's involved in getting healthy. Yeah. Uh, and it really happens in the clinic, in this clinical setting, you know, working with real people, mm-hmm. real people that when you give them a protocol that you read in a textbook or even a study, don't necessarily respond the way it's showed on paper. Exactly. And, and then what do you got to do? Right. right. And and that's um, that's sorry to, to interrupt, but that's actually been a, a little bit of my my beef, so to speak, with uh, studies, you know, because the, we've mm-hmm. you know had a few people who the, all they do is cite studies all day. And I'm saying, well, mm-hmm. what does it show clinically? Like, are you actually seeing those studies play out? Because we can talk about studies you know, all day long. But if the you know, for one thing, we know you, I, I'm pretty sure, you know, that uh, that a lot of studies are designed with an end in mind and they will 
prove that come hell or high water <laughs> that that it's going to you know play out the way they want it. Um, and we know that certain data has been manipulated in certain studies. So you know, how can we put that much faith in all of them when we know that there's, you know, there's going to be limitations in study design? Absolutely. Yeah. And I've written, I've even written about this in the past. There's a couple of blogs on it, um, on my website, but you know, the, like the gluten debate is such a good example of exactly that, that you've got, you've got a group of clinicians that are working with people in the flesh and blood every single day, writing books and writing articles about gluten and how when people eliminate it, they have wonderful results. Yeah. And then you have people who are saying, but the research isn't as solid as what you're saying in your books. And then they write books like the gluten lie or write articles with those titles. And unfortunately, or fortunately, like both sides are right, you know, the research isn't ironclad, but the clinicians are also working with real humans in the flesh. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the past editors of The Lancet even said himself that, you know, we shouldn't wait until science is 100% before we make changes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. You know, the, the, like, I could give so many examples. Like, I'll just give a couple, like the folic acid mm-hmm. situation where, you know, that prevents spina bifida. Right. Doctors knew that for 20 years. Yeah. Before brought was standard in clinical practice to tell people to take one milligram of folic acid. Right. You know, um, the gentleman who discovered hand washing prevented, you know, women giving birth from dying right. was ridiculed and shunned from his community. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it's like hand exactly. washing. Are you serious? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So oh, the question is today, what are we not accepting hundred percent or not accepting as, as good clinical evidence that we're saying, Hey, we need to wait for the research to appear. And, you know, gluten's a great example. Probiotics. Probiotics, right. Um, vaccines. There's a lot of stuff coming out on that as well, but that would be a discussion for another day. Oh boy, would it. (laughs) So, you know, so we, we, at the end of the day, people need to take the information that's out there and actually decide for themselves what what sounds most most right for them right absolutely absolutely yeah and uh uh kind of drive this home uh here in hawaii i mean it's all over but we grow turmeric and i recently got had a case of hives which i'm pretty sure was connected to turmeric now it's something that i've been eating all my life but um i was going through something and i was talking to i forget who i think it was my my acupuncturist and she said oh maybe up your turmeric a little bit and i tried it and sure as heck i broke out into hives that night and i was like mm-hmm. you know but again if you look at just what you're reading in these studies and on the internet, you're thinking, oh, turmeric can do no harm. You know, it's it's always 100% anti-inflammatory, but for for whatever reason, I don't know what the what the combination of factors were that day, but I broke in, out into hives and I'm pretty sure that's that's what that was the only thing that I could uh, discern as being uh, different that day. You know, we, we've got to sometimes heed the warnings of our own individual experience and um you know as clinicians what we are seeing uh it's not always about the patient lying or <laughs> trying to say that they did something <laughs> that they that they didn't um you know often there are going to be things that are are going to de- deviate from uh the textbook absolutely 
Yeah. And, and just on your point, one person's food is another person's poison. It can be anything. Okay. So, um, Josh Gitalis, that's J O S H G I T A L I S dot com. And you can also find him on Facebook at Josh Gitalis, clinical nutritionist, and on Instagram, Josh Gitalis. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Adrian. It was a pleasure. Thank you. The Nutrition Heretic Podcast is a production of Savor the Journey, LLC. Our audio editor is Nikola Popovich. Our podcast manager is Crystal McLean. And our operations manager is Michelle Med. I'm your host, Adrian Hugh, the Nutrition Heretic. You can find us at the new and improved nutritionheretic.com, where you can download the Nutrition Heretic's free shit list of seven health foods to avoid like the plague. You can also listen to previous episodes at nutritionheretic.com forward slash podcast. Be sure to like us on social media for updates. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash nutritionheretic and on Twitter at NutriHeretic. Contact us with show ideas, questions, or if you want to be a guest. And don't forget to rate our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Music